0: One of the women that I've admired since I was a little girl is Jane Goodall. Jane is a primatologist who has studied chimpanzees in East Africa for over 50 years. And this past April, she celebrated her 80th birthday. I've been reading her autobiography, My Life Among the Chimpanzees, and it's fascinating. Her love of animals started when she was just a little girl, but truthfully, it was her parents who really encouraged her to pursue her dreams and not let anything get in her way. She was born in London, but when she was just five years old, her parents moved her and her younger sister to France because they wanted the girls to be raised around people of different cultures and languages. Unfortunately, they were there only a few months when Hitler began a series of invasions that would lead to the beginning of World War II. And so they moved back to England to a country manor where her father had grown up as a little boy. They stayed there until Hitler declared war upon England and her father enlisted. And then Jane and her younger sister and her mother went to live with their grandmother. They would stay there for the duration of the war. Finally, though, the war ended and Jane graduated from high school. And the first thing that she did after high school was moved to Germany. She lived with a the family there for four months, um, in a country that had been her enemy, among people who had been fighting against her people. And yet her parents thought it was important that she go and live in Germany. They told her that, although Hitler and the Nazis were evil, that that didn't represent the, all the people in Germany. And they didn't want her to continue living, just viewing the people in Germany as her enemy. So she went to live there among this people, and and she loved her time with the family, but it was a hard time lived in that country because of all the devastation. She said it was dark and dreary to her, but there was one memory that stood out to her and made a profound impact in her life. She said when they were there, they went to visit the city of Köln, and the cathedral there is very famous. And while the city had taken such hits and destruction from the allied forces, the cathedral spires were undamaged. And she went, when she went there, she saw these spires rise up, she said, amongst the rubble of the surrounding buildings. And she said it was almost like a message from God saying, no matter the circumstances or no, how, no matter how bad it may seem, Goodness will win. For Jane, that was an impact on her life. It shaped and molded her thinking that goodness would win, no matter the circumstances. And she would seek out in her life the goodness of God and pursue that, even among people who she would consider to be an enemy. She would seek for peace. This morning, we're continuing on with our sermon series, The Wild Kingdom, celebrating God's creation. We're looking at different animal passages in the Bible and asking the question, what do they mean for us? What's the message that they have and how can we apply them to our lives today? And today we're looking at Jonah. Now the story of Jonah and the whale is fairly familiar to people, but it's pretty easy to overlook the worm in the story. Jonah was a prophet of God, and Jonah was sent by God to the people of Nineveh to preach a message of repentance that they would turn from their evil ways so that they wouldn't be punished. Now, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, and Jonah didn't want them to get a pardon from God. You see, the Assyrians, the people in that area, were some of the worst of the worst in the ancient Near East. They would commit such atrocities. When they went to battle against a country, they just wouldn't attack the, the country. They would brutalize it. They practiced psychological warfare so that all of the surrounding countries would know of their brutality and be less inclined to attack them. When they would go into battle, they would annihilate the people and then they would carve inscriptions and carve out great reliefs that told the story of all their brutal tactics because they wanted everyone to know of their exploits. Now, most of those are too graphic to read or describe, but if you were captured by the Assyrians in those days, many times they would remove your hands or your ears or your nose because they wanted you to be a terrible visual reminder to everyone this is what happens when you go up against the Assyrians many times however they would simply burn the city to the ground with everyone in it they would commit more atrocities than the Nazis that gives you a feel for what Jonah was up against and here God is telling Jonah I want to redeem the people of Nineveh and Jonah wanted no part of it he wanted them to get theirs he wanted them to get what was coming to them and so instead of going in to preach this message of forgiveness jonah gets on a ship and and sails in the opposite direction and there on the ship god sent this big storm that rose up and and jonah told the sailors aboard that ship unless you throw me overboard all of our lives are in jeopardy and the sailors prayed and after consideration that's exactly what they did and they threw him overboard And God provided a great fish to come and swallow Jonah to save him from drowning. And then after three days and three nights, God had the fish spit him up onto dry land. And finally, Jonah went to preach to the Ninevites. You have to wonder about how good his sermon was, though, if his heart was really in it. Because even after the Ninevites repented and asked God to change their life, Jonah went to a hilltop waiting to see God destroy the city even though he did what God had asked him to do he was still hoping and praying that God would wipe the city clean in God's mercy God provided a plant to provide shade over Jonah but even that didn't touch his heart he was still angry that God didn't destroy the city and so God provided a worm to eat at the plant and take away that shade and And still, Jonah was so embittered. And finally, he cried out to God, and he said, I can't believe you did this. I knew that this is the kind of thing that you would do. I'm so angry that you took away my shade plant. I'm angry enough to die. Now, in this story, God is at work in Jonah's life. And that's what this whole book is about. Certainly, God is going to redeem the people of Nineveh, but this story is about God and Jonah. It's not like when Jonah ran off, God didn't have a plan B. God was perfectly capable of showing mercy to the people of Nineveh without Jonah. When Jonah ran away, God could have gotten somebody else. But even though Jonah was disobedient, even though Jonah was so full of anger and bitterness, Time and again, God kept working in Jonah's life so that he could see the redemption of the people there. Over and over again, God wanted Jonah's heart to change. Now, the story of Jonah ends abruptly with a question. God asked the question to Jonah, should I not be concerned of the people of this great city? In other words, should I not be compassionate? Should I not be merciful? Don't you want me to be a compassionate God? When God asked that question, I think there are three questions that we can ask ourselves to help us become more compassionate, more merciful people in the world. And the first is, are we open to opportunities of mercy? Now, for Jonah, time and time again, God provided opportunities that he could have used to kind of clear his mind and change his heart. He had time on the ship, time in the whale, time in the shade, time in the sun, and yet every time he chose bitterness. God used everything from a whale to a worm to get Jonah's attention, and yet Jonah was so blind by his anger that he couldn't see the Assyrians as anything other than enemies. Are there times that we are blind to people? Are there moments that we turn away from opportunities to reach out and help? Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was a psychiatrist famous for her work in death and the stages of grief. And this coming August will mark the 10th anniversary of her death. A few years before her passing, she did an interview where she told the story of the event that led to her pursuit of the career of medicine. She was saying that she was 15 years old and lived in Poland, and it was the middle of World War II, and she was helping out with the relief efforts. There was so much destruction. So many homes had been destroyed, and so she was helping to rebuild the homes. She was helping people all around her. They didn't have much. But she was doing what she could. She was so tired. Yet the relief work continued on, and they had no tents where they could sleep. They slept on blankets on the ground in the open air. And it seemed that every single night someone was coming to Elizabeth and waking her up, asking for help. On one particular night, she was she was completely worn out. She was so tired, and she decided that that night, no matter what happened... She was going to sleep till morning. Nothing was going to wake her up. Well, she was deep in sleep late in the night when she started to hear a child crying. And she was determined just to go back to sleep, but the child kept crying. And finally, she was awake, but she refused to open her eyes. She thought, surely it will go away, but it didn't. And finally, she couldn't take it any longer, and she got up, and there beside her was a woman with this bundle, and she was holding her young son, who was crying and very sick. And this woman said to Elizabeth, you must help my son. He's sick. He's dying. I need you to help him. So Elizabeth took them to a small house that was serving as a clinic, and she examined the young boy. He was about three years old. And she found out that he had typhoid in the advanced stages. She, she had nothing she could do. There was no antibiotics, no medicine. There was no way that she could help. And so she handed the boy back to the mother and she said, I'm sorry. There's nothing we can do. Your son is going to die. Well, the mother started crying and she said, you have to save him. This is... The last of my 13 children, you have to save him. Well, Elizabeth was worn out. She was frustrated, and she said, that's easy to say, but I can't do anything. And then she said, what happened to the others? And this woman said, everyone in my family, all of my other children, my brothers and my sisters, my parents, my grandparents were taken away to the concentration camp, and they've all been killed this is my last member of my family. You have to save my child. And Elizabeth was telling the interviewer, she said, what I did next was just crazy, but I told the woman that there was a hospital in a nearby town. It was a day's walk away. And I told her that if we survived the journey, that maybe they could help her son there. And so the remainder of that night and the rest of the day, they walked to this town and they took care, Turns carrying this young boy and they finally arrived at the hospital but when they got there they were turned away and elizabeth was beside herself and she pleaded and begged and the doctor said that they were overflowing they had too many people and and so elizabeth started to get mad and she said you'll have to take him i will let everyone know all throughout europe And finally, the doctor relented, and he took the boy in, and he told the two women, you need to come back in three weeks. At the end of three weeks, either your son will be gone, or he'll be well enough to go home. He wouldn't let them stay because of the risk of infection, and so they had nothing to do but go back to the work camp. And there the mother stayed with Elizabeth, and she worked right beside her day in and day out. There was so much to do. Elizabeth started to lose track of the days. She couldn't tell which day it was, and one morning she got up and the mother was gone. She was sad to see her companion leave. She had been such an effective worker, but Elizabeth went on with her duties, and about a week had passed when she got up and she noticed beside her on the blanket was a handkerchief. And she opened it up, and inside was a package of soil, and a note. And the note said, Dear Elizabeth, this is blessed Polish soil from the mother of the 13th child that you saved. It turns out that this mother had gotten up one morning and made the walk all the way back to that town, back to the hospital, and there she found that her son was well enough to go home with her. They, took, they went all the way back to the village where she lived and they dug up some of the soil beside her house and she took it to the local priest and asked him to bless it. And then she walked all the way back to the work camp and she gave it to Elizabeth. Elizabeth said it must have taken her an entire week to make that journey. And she said it was the most incredible gift I had ever received. Now, no one would have blamed Elizabeth for wanting to get her sleep that night, for wanting to tune out the sounds of the world around her, but she would have missed out on this event that impacted her life. She would have missed out on the thing that helped shape her career for medicine. She would have missed out on helping to save this young boy's life. If she had kept her eyes closed, she would have missed it. Sometimes in life, we need to pray that God will open our eyes to the people around us, that we would look and see the opportunities in the world, that we would see others the way Christ sees them. Second, we need to ask ourselves the question, do we harbor resentment When we hold on to anger and bitterness, it robs us of life. Throughout the book of Jonah, there are all these stories of missed opportunities for Jonah. When God came to Jonah and told him about this plan that he wanted to redeem Nineveh, Jonah could have been excited and shown gratitude that he was going to be a part of God's plan. When the great fish swallowed Jonah to protect him from drowning and then spit him back out to protect him from digestion, Jonah had this incredible story that he could have told people, and yet he only begrudgingly went to Nineveh. When the people there repented of their sins and cried out for God to come into their lives, Jonah could have rejoiced that he was part of this incredible revival, but instead he went up hoping and praying to still see their destruction. At each turn, Jonah would cling to the anger in his heart, and there just wasn't any room for joy. When we have hearts full of bitterness, we don't have room enough for life and joy or peace when I was a little girl I loved going to visit my grandparents home and I loved going to their library that's what I called the room it was actually their TV room it just happened to have a built-in bookcase with a bunch of books so I always referred to it as the library and I would go in there and grandma and grandpa had a collection of National Geographic magazines and I'll never forget Reading the article by Jane Goodall, how she was describing all of her work with the chimpanzees, naming the chimpanzees. I must have read that article dozens and dozens of times. Later on, I started to read the work of Diane Fossey. She was another primatologist and she studied the mountain gorillas in Africa. And when I was a little girl, I dreamt of being a primatologist studying chimpanzees or gorillas in Africa. I knew that I wanted to be like one of these women. As the years went by, though, I started to read more, and I started to see the differences in how they live their lives. Jane Goodall truly is a woman of peace. She's known throughout the world, and I think that comes from deep within her, from her upbringing, from her church experience and from this desire to see the goodness of God lived out in the world. Not only does she love her chimpanzees, but she loves all animals, including human beings. And she seeks a world of peace. For Diane Fossey, she handled the opposition in a very different way. They started off very similar. They both went to Africa with almost no experience in studying primates, They met the world-famous anthropologist Louis Leakey, who established both of them in their research projects. They faced the same kind of opposition and enemies. They were were, uh, opposed by poachers and farmers and government. They had to face disease and hardship. They were two single women alone, virtually, in this solitude, studying the animals. And yet they handled that kind of opposition in very different ways, Diane Fossey became very bitter. She started to act out against the poachers and the farmers who she viewed encroaching on her guerrilla's land. She started capturing the poachers, and in her own words, she tortured them and humiliated them before sending them back home. She started capturing the livestock of the local farmers, she started kidnapping the children of posters and farmers. She spoke out against the government. And in her own words, she was terrible to the people in her uh, camp, the ones who worked for her and the ones that worked with her. She wrote in her journal of a cook that she didn't think was doing a very good job. And so she wrote, I started to treat him like dirt, and that seemed to be effective. I wish I had done that from the beginning. In the end, Diane Foste tragically was murdered in the middle of the night. And the sad reality is that they've never solved her crime because there are too many suspects. It's a sad way to live life, so full of hatred for others, no joy in life. Even when she was living her dream, she couldn't find the joy in the goodness of the world around her if we fill up our hearts with anger and resentment we will find that we just have no room for joy and peace and third are we sharing god's mercy are we seizing the opportunity to share god's grace with the world around us now when we read the book of jonah it ends abruptly and you can read that in english translations translations but when you read it in Hebrew it seems to be even more pronounced. When I was going to seminary I took different Hebrew classes and I remember one of the books that we read was the book of Jonah and we came to this final question by God should I not be concerned for the people of the city and I remember coming to it and I had read the story before but here I am flipping the page to figure out where it continued. I couldn't find it. I thought I'd lost my place. I couldn't couldn't find where the story went on and that was the point it shuts off that abruptly well at the same time that i was going through these hebrew classes there was an animated children's movie jonah that came out in movie theaters it was put on by the veggie tales company and i was serving two churches and we decided to take the children of those churches to see the movie jonah And so we were in this theater packed full of children and adults, their parents, and we're watching this kind of silly movie, the retelling of the Jonah story. And one of the characters is a pirate who's kind of the narrator of the biblical account. And when he comes to this ending in the Bible story, they show the ending by the pirate saying, the end, and he slams the door. And all the other characters in the movie are saying, what? That's it? What happens to Jonah? What's next? And all of a sudden, I see played out in the screen my exact feelings from Hebrew class. And so I lean over to the kids and the parents next to me, and I said, that's it. They got it right. That's exactly how the story goes. Now, keep in mind that this is the movie by VeggieTales, Tales. Jonah is played by a stalk of asparagus, and the other characters are peas and cucumbers and squash. I'm pretty sure my church family thought that my seminary education was a little suspect. But that is the sense of this abrupt ending. It's supposed to grab you. It's supposed to leave you asking, what happened? And there are a couple lessons in that. The first is that the opportunities won't always be there. For Jonah, throughout this entire book, he has opportunity after opportunity to change his heart. But when it comes to the end questioned by God, we don't know if he gets another shot. In our lives, the opportunities won't always be there. I think the really important lesson in this abrupt ending is that the final word is from God. God's mercy and compassion are the final word of this book. Despite the failures of Jonah, despite his bad attitude and his anger, God's word is the last one. And God's word is one of compassion and mercy. He says, should I not be compassionate? Should I not be merciful? This question is the one that rings in our ears that no matter the mistakes that we make, and we'll make them, no matter the opportunities that we miss, and we'll, we'll miss some along the way, God's word is still the last word to be heard, and God's mercy and compassion will be the final say. Dr. Long was telling me of a story of Barbara Jackson. Some of you may remember her. She worked here at St. Luke's many years ago, and she was an incredible woman. She was born and raised in England. And she married an American GI and moved to the United States. And she ended up serving here at St. Luke's, and just an incredible person. And she was sharing the story of her growing up and and living during the time of World War II with Dr. Long. She told about her father, who was a Methodist lay pastor in England. He owned a store, and he was well-known in the community. He was a leader in the community. People would gather at his store, not just to buy goods, but really to gather and congregate there, and he was well-respected. Well, this was a town that had been overrun by bombing attacks. They had faced the Blitzkrieg from the Nazis, and, and they were just used to, over and over again, these bombing runs. Well, one day after school, the sirens sounded, and everybody started running to the bomb shelters. But then she noticed everybody stopped. And they looked up, and there were two planes battling in the sky. There was a British Spitfire and a German Messerschmitt, and they were in a dogfight shooting at each other. And pretty soon, this crowd had gathered, and they looked up, and it was the German plane that started to smoke and started to spiral And the crowd was so excited, they were cheering, and then they saw that the German pilot bailed out of his plane. And they saw his parachute open, and they saw him drifting to the earth. And this crowd was determined to get to that pilot. These were people whose husbands and sons and brothers were serving in the war. And they had so much frustration, so much loss in their lives that they were going to take it out on this German soldier. And so they were running to him. But Barbara said that she got to the German pilot about the same time as her father. And her father made his way through the crowd and he got to this pilot and he told the crowd, we're not going to do anything to this young man. We're going to call the authorities and let them know that we have a prisoner And so he put his arms around this soldier and he walked him back all the way to his store. But the crowd was still angry. They couldn't believe his actions. And so they followed him all the way back to his store and they watched Barbara's father as he called the constable on the phone and he asked for two officers to come and and take this prisoner away. And then after he got off, Barbara said, I couldn't believe what happened. You know, we were on food rations, and nobody had enough. We all wanted more. And and my father took out a loaf of bread, and he cut off a, a huge slice, and he cut off a second huge slice, and then he took butter, and he buttered both slices of bread, and then he took ham, and he cut off a huge chuck of ham, and, and he made a sandwich for the soldier, and he put it in front of him along with a cup of tea, and this young German soldier just wolfed it down. He was so hungry, and he drank the tea, and he never took his eyes off of Barbara's father. Now, the crowd couldn't believe that he had done that, and they started crying out, what are you doing? Why would you do this for him? And Barbara's father said, what do you think Jesus would have us to do? How would Jesus want us to treat the enemy? And he spoke until the officials arrived, and they came in, and these were two large men, and And Barbara's father knew that they both had sons who were serving in the war. And so Barbara's father looked at the two men and he said to them, I want you to treat this young man the same way that you would want your sons to be treated if they were captured. And they nodded, they understood. And they started to walk this man through the crowd when all of a sudden, this German soldier broke free from their grasp and ran back and wrapped his arms around Barbara's father. And he's sobbing, and he's saying, Thank you, thank you. And finally, they led the man away. Eventually, he would be serving at a dairy farm there outside in the country, and he would serve there for the duration of the war. And when the war was over, he was allowed to return home to his family in Germany. But on that particular occasion, after he was led away, Barbara said the crowd dispersed, and her father was left there with her alone. And he sat down at the kitchen table, and he just started sobbing. He started crying, and she said, I knew why. He was thinking of his two sons, my brothers, one of whom was missing in action and one who had been captured behind enemy lines. I knew my father was hoping that his two boys were being treated the way that he was treating this German soldier. God has shown us incredible kindness, hoping that we will treat all as the children of God. We've been given incredible freedom. And so the final question is, should we not be a compassionate people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, let each of us lift up our own silent prayers.